0: Welcome to the show today, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have a lot of really fun, exciting new guests, new interviews coming very soon. But this is a talk that we had never published on the podcast, we wanted to share it with you. Um, This is my uh, apologetics magnum office. If you want to become a a pro-life ninja, and navigate your way through the pro-abortion waters and the culture of death like a well-trained waterman, uh, then watch this message from a church in Charlotte a couple years ago on the five major flaws of the entire pro-abortion industry. (laughs) Meaning if you can remember this lecture and this talk, you'll be able to place all of the major flaws in pro-abortion argumentation and rhetoric within one of these five baskets if you will uh to build out the scaffolding of your mind to be an effective ambassador for pre-born children and a voice for life in very increasingly dark times uh, so this is five big mistakes or bad ways that pro-abortion advocates argue for abortion listen to this a couple times send it to your pro-choice friends and i think this will be the secret weapon in your pocket that you need to defend life in these times. Buckle up your in for a treat. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. How you doing, guys? Good, good evening. Thanks to you guys so much for coming out. Um, I'm always impressed with anyone who will come out in the middle of the week, in the evening, to hear someone talk about abortion. Um, not very fun but more necessary now maybe than any other time in our country. There's a lot of reasons for that. We don't have time to dive into all of them because I want to get to the meat of this presentation. But listen, while we have the liberty to defend life and stand in the public square and stand on public sidewalks to defend life, we need to do that. And if the church doesn't wake up in America and begin contending in the political sphere, the public square, the public square, outside on the sidewalks, outside death camps, whereas Justin is fond of saying, we know innocent human beings are scheduled to die. We have the addresses. If the church doesn't, wake up and end the scourge of abortion on this country, every other liberty and freedom we take for granted and enjoy in this country will be gone. And that's for one simple reason. If you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. Now that doesn't mean that you should engage abortion and defend the unborn because you want to protect your own liberties and rights. But it is a good reminder. It is a little bit of a good selfish reminder that if we don't restore the right to life to the pre-born, every other right we take for granted will be taken away. Because abortion, like slavery, friends, is a litmus test of the Republic. Because abortion strikes to the very heart of who we are as a people and our founding ideals, our founding principles. Do we actually still believe in our founding principles and ideas? We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men and women are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, meaning they can't be taken from you. They're intrinsic. It is intrinsic to being a human being to have dignity, to have rights, because those rights come from God. They're intrinsic to who you are. They were knit together in your soul when you were created. Therefore, they can't be taken from you. So abortion is not an issue of legal rights, it's an issue of natural rights. And as long as our country continues to deny the natural right to life to an entire class of human beings, then we cannot trust that government to protect any other rights that flow from that first and most important of all rights. Ronald Reagan, former governor of California, formerly pro-choice, has unborn blood on his hand because of his pro-choice policies, meets Christ, has a conversion to the pro-life movement, and writes in his book, Abortion and the Conscience of a Nation, because he recognized that it defined who we really were and what we really believed, our conscience, said, Abraham Lincoln recognized that we could not survive as a free land when some men could decide that others are not fit to be free and should therefore be slaves. Then Reagan said, likewise, today, we cannot survive as a free nation when some men can decide that others are not fit to live and should therefore be abandoned to abortion and infanticide. Therefore, he says, there is no cause more important than affirming the transcendent right to life of all human beings, without without which no other rights have any meaning. No other rights can be realized. So that's why this is important. That's why we have to wake up. Because we're going to give an account to our children, our grandchildren, and one day God, as to what we did as the most powerful political entity in human history. I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that you sitting here right now, you have more political power than any human being could have ever imagined in their dizziest daydreams at any country and any time in human history because you're the sovereign and our politicians serve at our pleasure as long as we can uh, continue to trust the uh, election system, but that's a talk for another time as well. You are more powerful than any other political individual in all of human history, more so than any king because kings couldn't just be voted out. We're the king in America and you know who the counselor to the king is? The bride of Christ, the church, this country was founded by activist preachers who wanted to put their faith into the political sphere and into the public square. So we as the bride of Christ who understand where natural rights come from, beginning with the right to life, have a duty and responsibility to inform our fellow citizens about that beautiful truth and speak to their very soul that these rights are God's ideas and not yours. And if we don't restore the right to life to the preborn, as Psalm 106 says, God is going to continue to give his church over to be ruled by those who hate us. Okay, now that you're encouraged. Sometimes it can be costly to engage evil and defend life. In fact, that's pretty much a promise in Scripture. You will be hated. You will be persecuted. They hated me, so they're going to hate you also. Consider it a blessing and a joy when people hate you and speak ill of you. It's costly to engage evil and defend life. And you know who understood this, probably better than any other person in my generation, with the exception of an incredible few, were the men who hit the sand at Omaha Beach on June 6, 1944. And if you know your history, you'll know that the Allied troops endured roughly a 90% casualty rate. And there were a few reasons for this. Firstly, there was a problem with the tides, and so our landing crafts weren't able to get as far in to the beach as they thought they were able to. The second reason was that the defenders were far more equipped to engage our Allied troops than the Allied troops had been led to believe. So when those landing craft doors opened, they were met with a firepower they were completely unprepared for. The third reason was that the water was a lot deeper than our Allied troops thought it was. So when those landing craft doors opened and they ran out of those doors into the water, they sunk 20 feet deep where their 100-pound packs drowned them to death before they even got a shot off. And for those who did survive, they only did so by ditching their 100-pound packs, swimming to the surface, swimming to the shore, where they then had to engage an enemy without any weapons. And if you've seen the first 10 minutes of the Saving Private Ryan film, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Brothers and sisters, I want to talk to you this evening about your place on that beach. You see, this is important because many of you feel like the troops that got dropped on the beach at Normandy on June 6, 1944. The gate of that landing craft has opened, and you find yourself in very confusing, fearful, and dangerous times. On hostile turf, where people are firing at you with ideas that are contrary to everything you've ever believed. You find yourself in enemy territory... In strange times where people believe strange things that are so different than every idea you believe and that you were raised to believe in your faith, you're being ridiculed, you're under fire, and you find yourself without the weapons to engage. Unfortunately, this has largely been the state of the American church on the issue of abortion. We might wax and wane with pro-life rhetoric, but when it comes time to engage in the public square, when it comes time to speak life, to defend life, to call lies lies, to call bigotry bigotry, we don't even know how to speak up and defend what we believe because one, we don't even know what the enemy believes, and secondly, we don't have our own weapons or tools to engage. So I've been told I don't necessarily need to convince the audience tonight that they should do something about abortion, uh, it sounds like this church and many of you are doing that already. If you're not, then, you know, I'll try to make you feel bad, so you do. But primarily, I want you guys equipped to engage in the culture wars and on the battlefields that you find yourself as people are firing at you with ideas that maybe you're unprepared for and don't know how to engage with. So I wanna give you the five bad ways that pro-abortion individuals argue for abortion, the five flaws in pro-abortion thinking, and if you memorize these or take notes of these, and I have this talk on my podcast as well, so you can re-listen to it, it's called Unaborted with Seth Gruber, then you'll be equipped to recognize all of the flaws of the enemy, all of the bad bullets of the enemy, and you'll know how to engage and respond. Now, Roseanne Barr, who's this like alleged comedian, maybe you've heard of her before, she had this HBO special years ago where she took, she took her, her little segment to attack pro-lifers. It's a very common uh, thing for pro-aborts to do. And here's what she said. She said, you know who else I can't stand? Are them people that are anti-abortion. I hate them. They're ugly, old, geeky, hideous men. They just don't want nobody to have an abortion because they want you to keep spitting out kids so they can molest them. Okay. Pretty common, pretty par for the course. Now, rather than us getting on the offensive and beginning to yell at individuals who say ridiculously unfounded things by telling them they're wrong, we need to recognize the type of flaws that they resort to when they can't contend on the main thing. And the main thing is the status of the child in the womb. Is it a human being, an image bearer of God, or is it simply an insensate blob of tissue? Now, suppose she's right. Let's say, suppose she's right with her criticism of pro-life men. Does that in any way defeat the pro-life argument? that it's always wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Abortion does that, therefore abortion is wrong. No, of course not. She just attacks her perceived perception of the character of pro-lifers rather than her argument. You know, there's this law school saying that says, when you have the facts, pound the facts. And when you don't have the facts, pound the table and do it loudly. In other words, when you don't have a substantive argument to defend your beliefs, just make a lot of noise. Put the attention on you and attack your opponent because you can actually engage. So... At the street level, there are five primary flaws and mistakes that pro-abortion advocates make in their arguments for abortion. I'm going to give you these five, and if you understand and grasp them, they will probably describe every pro-abortion argument you will ever hear for the rest of your life. I've categorized them into five major flaws that cover essentially any pro-choice argument you will ever hear. The first one is they assume rather than argue. They assume rather than argue, And, and you know what happens when you assume, right? C.S. Lewis once said that the most dangerous ideas in a society are not the ones being argued for. They're the ones being assumed. Because you see, assumed ideas, especially when undetected, can destroy a nation. Why? Because ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. It was a very dangerous assumed idea in the 1850s that blacks were somehow not fully human not really persons. Now, did racists ever offer a substantive argument in defense of their bigotry? Did they ever have an argument to articulate why black individuals, while they were fully human beings, were not persons or they were somehow subhuman? No, of course not. They just assumed that our black brothers and sisters somehow weren't fully human. They never argued for it. So assumed ideas, especially when undetected, can destroy a nation, and that's certainly true on the issue of abortion. So they assume rather than argue. So here's what this looks like in the issue of abortion. Let me explain to you their fallacy so you can detect it when they make an argument for abortion. Firstly, does anyone have a younger brother? Okay, Have you stopped beating him yet? Have you stopped? You have stopped beating him, praise God. Now, notice the way that I phrase the question really puts her in a difficult situation. If she says, No, I haven't stopped beating her, she's admitting that she still beats her brother, right? And if she says, Yes, I stopped beating him, she's admitting that she used to beat her brother. So, what have I assumed that she beats her brother? And what am I trying to prove? that she beats her brother the same thing. So I've assumed the very thing that I must prove in order for my argument to work in the first place. This is called begging the question, and it is a logical fallacy. And it is the number one fallacy and error in pro-choice arguments. It's the most common one that you'll find. So here's some examples. The argument from privacy, right? Hey, pro-lifer, shut up. You don't get to tell women to not get abortions because that's a privacy issue. You probably heard this one, right? Each woman should be able to make her own private medical reproductive justice decisions with her husband or her partner, only in the privacy of her own homes, and you shouldn't be able to talk to those private medical decisions. Shh. Each individual should be able to decide for themselves. Very well. Instead of screaming about how they're wrong to make that argument, let's resort to the Socratic method of asking good questions and just carry their argument to its logical conclusion by applying it to born people. Hey, pro-choicer, should we allow mothers to kill their toddlers as long as they do so in the privacy of their own homes? You see, that's a privacy issue, pro-choicer. And how dare you intrude into the private family medical decisions between mothers and fathers and husbands and wives as they contemplate whether they're going to drown Timmy after his bath? How dare you intrude in those private living room family conversations? Yeah, I don't think so. I think the pro-choicer would go, "Ew, you sicko. Okay, so we can't kill toddlers, can't kill Timmy and you can't use privacy to defend it. Why not, pro-choicer? Because Timmy's a human being. You can't kill human beings. Ah, right. So the humanity that you're granting to the toddler, in my counterexample, you're denying to the unborn child in your argument for abortion. So what is the pro-choicer assumed about the unborn? Not a human. human. Or somehow not deserving of the same natural rights that all other human beings have and which they ironically grant to themselves because they're unaborted and their mother didn't kill them. What about forcing morality? right? Oh, pro-lifer, you Republican rube, you can't force your morality on others. And if that's your personal Christian pro-life belief, that's fine. You know, if you don't like abortions, don't get one. That's, that's fine that you hold that morality, but just keep it in your own church, okay, and in your own home. Don't impose that on others. Okay, hmm. Uh, pro-choicer, isn't the mother imposing her morality on her unborn child who she has scheduled to die? Oh, I don't really like that pro-lifer. Right, because you've assumed the unborn is not fully human. You're, you're fine with forcing morality as long as it's on unborn babies who can't dissent and say, please don't dismember me. But if I try to impose a good morality on you, namely, you shouldn't kill innocent human beings, then you dissent because it disrupts your selfish lifestyle. What about no one knows when life begins, right? You've heard this one? Yeah, we can't really uh, agree on that. You know, there's not consensus on that. Or to quote Justice Blackman, who authored the Roe v. Wade 1973 decision, when theologians and philosophers and doctors can't agree on the question of when human life begins, it goes beyond the purview of this court to answer that question. In other words, if we disagree, there is no truth. Just like we used to disagree on slavery, I guess there was no truth then, right? So no one knows when life begins, pro-lifer. And so uh, women should have a right to an abortion through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all. But to say that life does not begin at conception is to assume what? that it doesn't begin until birth. The very thing that the pro-choicer must prove in order for his argument to work in the first place. Here's one more example, and this one will help you guys because we'll probably get a question about this one if I don't address it anyways. Back alley abortions. You know this one? Hey, pro-lifer. If you make abortion illegal like you want, then women are going to be forced into dangerous back-alley abortion clinics where they're going to die by the thousands. You won't believe the bloodshed we're going to have. Do you really want their blood on your hands, pro-lifer? So you see, we need to keep abortion legal because if we make it illegal, women will die unnecessarily from dangerous back-alley abortions. Okay, that's the argument. Now, firstly, just as an aside, I want you to point out to pro-choice people how sexist this argument is to assume that women are so inherently weak of soul that even when abortion is made illegal, they just won't have any other choice but to pursue dangerous, back alley, illegal abortions while endangering their own lives in the process. Wow, that's how low you view women, right, pro-tracer? That they won't embrace motherhood for the child that they're already a mother to. I have a significantly higher view of women, which is that they will embrace motherhood for the child that they're already a mother to and it can accomplish everything else as well because they're an image bearer of God with great potential and beauty. So it's actually very sexist to argue this, because that's how, that's how little they think of women, that they're just going to have no other choice but to arrange dangerous illegal abortions. But here's how they assume the unborn isn't fully human in that argument. I want you to identify it, because sometimes this begging the question fallacy can be a little bit hidden. It can be a little bit hard to detect. To say that we need to keep abortion legal, because if you make it illegal, women will die from dangerous back alley abortion clinics is to say this. It's to say that because some people die trying to kill others, the state should make it safe and legal for them to do so. Because some people die, who would be some people? The mothers, because they might die trying to kill others. Who's others? The unborn child. The state should make it safe and legal for them to do so. Let's apply that moral law to another context. And let's see if the pro-choicer accepts his own reasoning. Guys, hey, pro-choicer, we actually really need to legalize school shootings. The very things that leftists hate the most, right? We need to legalize school shootings because some depraved, emotionally disturbed school shooters get shot and then are harmed or killed by the security officer who's preventing them from killing others. So they're getting harmed or killed in the process of trying to kill others just like the woman might be getting harmed or killed in the process of trying to kill others. So the state should make it safe and legal for them to shoot their peers in public high schools. Yay! And the pro-choice goes, oh, gosh. But it's the same moral law applied to a different context, but they reject it. Why do they reject it this side of the womb, but not in the womb? Because they've assumed the unborn is not fully human, and they've never argued for it. And you know what happens when you assume. That's the first mistake they make is they assume rather than argue. The second mistake is that they confuse objective claims with subjective claims. Okay? And I assume you probably know what these terms mean, but if you don't, let me give you a very brief overview. An objective claim is a claim that's either true or false. It is either true or false. There's no other options. An objective claim is a claim about the nature of reality itself. A subjective claim is true about the subject. And who's the subject? You. You're saying something that you believe to be true. So if I say it's always wrong to torture toddlers for fun, I'm making an objective claim. I'm saying it is always wrong to do that objectively, whether you like it or not and whether you agree with me or not. Now, I would hope no one in this uh, room would raise their hand and go, Seth, maybe it's wrong for you to torture toddlers for fun, but please don't impose your anti-toddler torturing position on me because that's forcing religion and morality and you need to stay out of my uterus, right? No one would say that because we recognize that I made an objective claim about the nature of reality. But if I say vanilla ice cream is better than chocolate ice cream and you disagree, you're wrong! No, I'm just kidding, right? That's a subjective claim, right? You are wrong, but it's okay, right? It's okay that we disagree on that because that's a claim that's true simply about me. And if you disagree, neither person's really wrong. So that's the difference between an objective and subjective claim. The second mistake pro-choicers make when they argue for abortion is they confuse objective claims with subjective claims. And this has really just been the goal of the modern left, since the sexual revolution and before is to claim that when it comes to religious claims and moral claims those are just private they're just individually true and how dare you claim to have truth on that matter right what's one of the big attacks against Christianity how can you think that it's only your God that can get you to heaven right you keep that religion in your own living room that's just true for you right or all, you know, all roads lead to God right it's all subjective so when it comes to religion and morality specifically The left has always tried to redefine those debates as purely subjective debates that can be true for individuals rather than based in reality. But pro-lifers like us are not claiming that abortion is wrong because we dislike abortion. We're claiming that abortion is wrong, period, whether you like it or not, and whether you agree with me or not, and if you disagree with me, you're wrong. That's the claim we're making as pro-lifers, not merely a subjective one. But when we say abortion is wrong, do you know what the other side often hears? Oh, pro lifers don't like abortion. Keyword like. As if abortion is only wrong depending on whether you like it or not. Hence the bumper sticker don't like abortion? Don't have one. Try this one. Don't like spousal abuse? Don't beat your wife. Don't like slavery? That's fine. Just don't buy a slave. By the way, this is what the racist Democrat Stephen Douglas essentially argued when he ran against Lincoln in 1860, or 1858, 1859 for the 1860 election. He said each state should have the right to decide for themselves. (laughs) So, you know, if northern states don't like slavery, that's fine. But if southerns do, that's fine too. Conflating objective claims about the nature of reality with merely subjective Preference claims, and treating every moral claim as merely a preference claim that's only true for me, only true for you, actually has a name, it's actually a worldview, and it's called relativism. Relativism says that there are no objective standards that we're all beholden to. So each individual, or sometimes they'll say each culture, decides their own morality, their own moral compass. And no one else can determine how they can or cannot live. In other words, anything goes. So either individuals or societies writ large decide their own moral codes independent of personal taste or culture. Now there's a few flaws with relativism, I don't have time to go into all of them, but I'll do one or two because relativism is the foundational worldview upon which their assumption is based, their assumption that objective claims are just subjective claims. Does that make sense? In other words, you can't tell a pro-lifer who says abortion's wrong, that it's just wrong for them unless you've adopted the worldview of relativism. Does that make sense? So let me tell you why relativism's wrong so you can see the faulty premises that their belief on truth is based upon. Relativism is self-defeating, meaning it can't live with its own rules. Another way to say that is relativism commits intellectual suicide. And before I explain what I mean by that, I want to show you one brief, very, very funny clip between this new age uh, sort of alternative medicine guru named Deepak Chopra and this random homie in the audience during Q&A who asked Deepak a question, and it, it puts the self-destructive nature of relativism into a very funny context. So let's play this clip. I want to take another question. There's a gentleman in the red shirt back there. He's had his hand up for a while Come up to the microphone. Uh, my, my question's for, for Deepak and, and uh, the bishop. Now, you stated before that, all belief is a cover-up for insecurity, right? Mm-hmm. You believe that? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. All righty. So if you didn't get that, I'll break it down for you. So Deepak Chopra, very relativistic sort of, you know, new age science guru, had made the claim in this event and in his books that all belief is a cover-up for insecurity. And so this homie says, do you believe that, right? He says, yes. So therefore, you believe that all belief is a cover-up for insecurity. So therefore, that's also a belief, which means it's also a cover-up for insecurity, which means how can I trust your claim that all belief is a cover-up for insecurity because in believing it, you're revealing your own insecurities. Oops. So relativism commits intellectual suicide. Here are some other statements that expose the same self-destructive nature of relativism, okay? My brother is an only child. I cannot speak a word in English. Including that sentence. Don't take anybody's advice on anything. Including that advice. And there is no truth which is the fundamental claim of relativism. That there is no truth. But if there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what do you need to ask? Is that true? Is it true that there is no truth? Because if it is true that there is no truth, I would have to step out of the reality that there is no truth in order to get access to truth in order to make the claim that there is no truth. So it commits intellectual suicide. This is the fundamental foundational worldview of the religion of secular progressivism and of the culture of death and of the abortion rights movement. But it can't live by its own rules. I'll give you just one other flaw of relativism. Relativism can't actually say why anything's wrong, including intolerance, the very thing that the left claims to hate, right? Why are you so intolerant, you pro-life bigot? Right? They, They don't like intolerance. They think it's wrong. But relativism can't actually say why anything's truly wrong. Because if morals are completely relative to cultures or to individuals, then it follows that there's no ethical difference between Adolf Hitler and Mother Teresa. They just had different preferences. So, see, Mother Teresa liked to feed people and Adolf Hitler liked to kill people, but who are we to judge? Because each person designs their own moral codes. So relativism can't even condemn anything as wrong, including intolerance. So when I say, I'm an intolerant individual, yes, I am intolerant of pro-abortion bigotry, I am intolerant of the position that says it's okay to rip human beings limb from limb in the womb and call it reproductive justice. I am intolerant of that belief. The relativist can't actually say that I've done anything wrong because I'm just living by my own truth. So don't judge me. right? So relativism also can't say anything's anything's truly wrong. I don't have time to get into the other ones. But that's why relativism fails. And that's what, pr- that's what provides the worldview premise in order for them to make that second mistake in their arguments, to confuse objective claims about the nature of reality with subjective preference claims. The third mistake is they attack rather than argue. And this is what uh, What's-Her-Name was doing, right? She was just attacking her perception of men and pro-life individuals rather than attacking our argument and contending with our arguments. So anytime someone attacks you, man or woman, frankly, rather than attacking your pro-life argument, simply ask them this, rather than telling them they're wrong and trying to prove them wrong, simply ask them this, let's assume that what you say about me is true, okay? Does that in any way disprove my argument that abortion is wrong because it kills an innocent human being without proper justification? No, of course not, but they can't contend on the main thing. They can't attack our arguments. And anytime someone resorts to ad hominem attacks or attacking you, you can probably rest assured and feel pretty confident that you're a badass and that you have the truth. Because if they were so confident in their beliefs, they would be offering a substantive argument in response to your argument to contend in the marketplace of ideas. But they can't, so they won't. What are some examples of attacking rather than arguing? Let me just take a couple that you're very familiar with. It's hypocritical for pro-lifers to say they're pro-life unless they're adopting all the babies, support universal health care, universal basic income, they're providing for all of the debt, they're paying for the pregnancy, they're adopting all the babies, and they are fostering all the children. In fact, you can't even be pro-life unless you're doing those things and your pro-life argument is hypocritical and it's debunked unless you're doing everything else i say you need to do namely adopting the babies paying for the delivery paying for the diapers and doing everything that love life does out of the lovingness of their hearts but they're saying that your argument is false that you can't actually even be pro-life unless you're doing those things but this is like saying you can't oppose me beating my wife unless you're willing to marry her This is like saying, you can't oppose me beating my toddler unless you're willing to adopt him. Now, the pro-choice would probably say, "Um, I'm not adopting your kid, but just stop beating him. And my anti-toddler beating position is still valid even if I don't adopt the toddlers being beaten. Does that make sense? My anti-toddler beating position isn't debunked or disproved as inconsistent because I'm not adopting the toddlers who are being beaten. Now, Christians do love families and children both before and after they're born because we're called to by christ we're called to love our neighbor but that doesn't mean that you're not pro-life if you don't do those things so even if the pro-life movement and pro-lifers said i'm gonna love that child until they slip out of the birth canal and as soon as they slip out of that birth canal i'm out of here baby even if we said that and did that it actually doesn't disprove the pro-life argument because the pro-life argument is that it's always wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings abortion does that therefore abortion is wrong But we are dedicated dedicated to caring for the woman and the child. Did you know that according to Pregnancy Help News, there's almost twice as many pregnancy resource centers in this country as abortion clinics? Did you know that? Pregnancy Help News estimates that there's between 2,700 and 3,200 pregnancy resource centers in the country compared to the 1,700 abortion clinics. Pregnancy resource centers, as you probably know, provide services including prenatal care, STI testing, STI treatment, ultrasound, childbirth classes, labor coaching, midwife services, lactation consultation, nutrition consulting, social work, abstinence education, parenting classes, material assistance, post-abortion counseling, and often housing for the women who don't have anywhere to stay. Does that sound like just pro-birth? Like we only care about the baby until it's born and then we don't care? In fact, the Catholic Church, which is the most influential and largest religious institution within the pro-life movement uh, does a very good job caring for quality of life outside the womb. Did you know that? In fact, they make the largest financial, institutional, and personal commitments to charitable causes of any private source in the country, the Catholic Church. And they're the largest religious institution within the pro-life movement the very individuals who are told that we're inconsistent because we're not loving children outside the womb. Catholic churches start the biggest hospitals, massive private education, massive homeless shelters they care for, um, many disabled and immigrants and elderly as well. This is all quality of life outside the womb stuff. That doesn't disprove the pro-life argument, but just as a point of fact, we do a pretty good job. And secondly, then they say, you men, (laughs) you have penises. Shut up. No uterus, no choice. You don't get to oppose abortion. You don't even get to express pro-life beliefs because you don't have a uterus. Anytime someone tells you this, man, here's your response. Nice to meet you, sexist. I never met a real-life sexist. What is more sexist than telling someone that you're discounting all of their thoughts and beliefs on a matter because of their genitalia? Can you imagine if I told a a woke 21-year-old pro-choice feminist with a lesbian dance theory major from UC Berkeley, who volunteers at Planned Parenthood on weekends, that she can't oppose 40-year-old men raping 8-year-old boys because that's a male issue. It only involves humans with penises. And so, actually, ma'am, you can't actually speak out against that. And so, you know, the Me Too stories about men who weren't raping women, they were raping little boys, yeah, you actually can't oppose that. And I don't want to hear you talk about that. I'd probably be labeled a sexist by her, and rightly so. That would be a very sexist thing of me to say. Oh, but when they say that to men, when they discount our arguments because of our genitalia, that's just speaking truth to power? No, I don't think so. That's not how this works. That's sexism. By the way, if pro-life men have to shut up on abortion, then tell your pro-choice friends, I didn't know you supported overturning Roe versus Wade with me. And they go, huh, what? Yeah, nine men were on the Supreme Court in 1973 when it went 7-2 in support of abortion. How dare those penis holders legislate on abortion? And they go, no, I I love that men ruled on abortion, I love that. Oh, so you don't mean that pro-life, you don't mean that all men should shut up on abortion, you just mean pro-life men. Oh, so it's not even about gender, it's about ideological uniformity. Yes, wake up church, that's been the goal of the modern leftist movement for hundreds of years, is to make everyone think and look just like them. And if they don't, you'll be treated as a heretic of the religion of secular progressivism, and you'll be thrown into utter darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yes, it is an alternative religion, and if you don't think and act just like them, you will be treated as a heretic. Oh, by the way, how do pro-choice women treat pro-life women? Oh, not very good. They call them a traitor to their own sex. So, wait, I thought only women could speak on abortion. Oh, you only attack people who disagree with you regardless of gender. And you use gender as a political cudgel to hit people on the head to shut up because they pose a significant threat to your political goals. So, gender just becomes a cudgel to silence pro-lifers, okay? Frank Beckwith, a philosopher and Christian brother, has a great line. He says, arguments don't have sexual organs. (laughs) So, if I offer an argument for why abortion is wrong and you say, yeah, but, I mean, Seth, you you have male genitalia. Uh, Yeah, arguments are just arguments. My argument doesn't have a penis, so why don't you deal with the argument and attack the argument instead? The fourth mistake is that they hide behind hard cases like rape, and you're familiar with this one, right? When it comes to rape and incest, these become the number one political cudgel to make you look like an insensitive bigot, a hateful bigot. Come on, pro Or You would force a woman to have an abortion. I'm sorry, you would force a woman to give birth to a child that was conceived in rape. What kind of animal are you? I thought you were pro-life. And it's used as a way to silence you and make you look somehow unfeeling. But this is a sham argument. The reason it's a sham argument is because the pro-choice movement, you guys, does not believe that abortion should be legal in cases of rape. They believe it should be legal for any reason or no reason at all. And you can expose this by asking them this question. Hey, pro-choicer, did you know in 2004, less than half of a percent of the abortions performed were performed in cases of rape? Half of one percent of abortions in 2004 were performed in cases of rape. So, pro-choicer, will you join me in the pro-life movement to fighting to end the 99.5% of all other abortions that do not occur in cases of rape? And what do they say? No, I believe abortion is a fundamental human right. Oh, so you're hiding behind rape victims to make yourself look compassionate. You're appealing to the exception to argue for the norm. And that is a logical fallacy. And you can expose that by asking them. But it's also a perversion of justice. Because in what other circumstance would a pro-abortion advocate accept the murder of a child because the child's mother was brutally abused? Would they accept the murder of an infant or toddler and justify it because mom was brutally abused? No, they only accept that premise because the child's in the womb. So ask them this question. How many parties are involved in a pregnancy that arises from rape. Three, baby, rapist, mom, and then ask them, who should get the death penalty? How about the rapists? And they probably go, oh yeah, murder them, right? Well, did you know rapists don't get the death penalty in America? We rarely carry out capital punishment anyways in this country. And that's a lecture for another time. But rapists don't get the death penalty unless they maybe rape and murder a woman. I support harsher legal penalties against rapists. I support castrations and life in prison in a single cell to never see the light of day again. The pro choicer doesn't, why do I know this? You know the pro-choice movement is all about jailbreaking criminals, and they hate capital punishment. The pro-choice movement is always talking about how immoral and evil the death penalty is, unless it's a death penalty applied to innocent human beings in a womb that they once came from. Then it's, then it's just just, and that's just being a woke social justice warrior. So they don't actually oppose the death penalty. They only support it in the case of prenatal human beings. Okay, but we don't give the rapist the death penalty in America. The only guilty party. All right, pro-choicer, do we give the death penalty to mom? And they go, oh my gosh, I knew you were a sick pro-lifer. No, I don't believe that. I'm asking you. And they say, no, of course not. And I go, well, in some Muslim countries, they actually murder women who have been raped. You know this? It's called honor killings. It's extremely twisted, depraved, and sick. They have this very sick, demonic culture of shame that tells them that if you've been raped, you've brought shame on the family. So they murder women who have been raped. Praise God we don't do that in America. That's disgusting and sick because she's an innocent victim. Okay, so we don't give the death penalty to the mother. Should we give the death penalty to the unborn child? Now, if you phrase it that way, that forces them to really defend their heinous beliefs, but they'll probably twist it and say, right, it's just reproductive justice. But if the mother can't kill her rapist who is guilty, why should she be able to kill her unborn child who's just as innocent as she is? So it's a perversion of justice. Now, of course, we need to acknowledge the horrific circumstances that women have gone through when they've been brutally abused. I'm simply making the point that killing innocent human beings in order to spare mom the trauma associated with raising that child is not just. So, pro-choicers do not support killing babies conceived in rape after they're born. They only support killing babies conceived in rape before they're born. So, what happened to that child? Because you no longer support killing it now that it traveled through the magical birth canal. Oh, right, the fetus fairy flew up and sprinkled magical personhood conferring fairy dust on the child as it exited the birth canal, and now it's a person! Okay. The birth canal does not confer personhood, this is ludicrous. So this exposes their bigotry that says if you're in a womb, you can be killed because you're in the wrong location. Another way you can trod this out and expose their bigotry is you can tell them, you're right pro choiceer I don't want mothers raising babies who look like the rapist. You've heard that angle of the argument, right? What if that baby looks like the rapist? So you, pro-lifer, would force a mother to raise a baby and have the trauma associated with raising that child every day because the child looks like rapist dad and she has to relive the trauma. So you become the sick one for supporting that. Okay, you're right, pro-choicer, oh my gosh, I don't want that either. But you know, half of babies look like mom. And you know, facial structures take a little bit while to develop. You know, at first everyone said my son looked like me and then my wife and then me again. So, pro-choicer, what we really need to do is we need to let all babies conceived in rape be born. Because we don't want to accidentally abort some that look like mom. Because your argument, pro-choicer, is if it looks like the rapist dad, mom will be forced to relive that trauma. Okay, so, uh, but then, you know, facial structure takes a little bit to develop. Okay, let's just wait till their two-year-old birthday, and then when they're standing there shoving cake in their mouth, we'll get together and we'll say, okay, does it look like rapist dad? Do you remember what he looked like, or does it look like mom? Okay, if it looks like rapist dad, we'll chop his head off. If it looks like mom, we'll let her live. And, and I'm compassionate, dang it! That's why I support that compassionate, loving solution, because I don't want mothers raising babies who remind them of their rapist because they look like rapist dad. How many pro-choicers would support that uh, solution? None of them. But the birth canal doesn't confer personhood. The fifth mistake and last one is they confuse human value with human function. And this is probably the most important one. This last one is probably the most important one. They confuse human value with human function. In other words, being human is not enough to ground your rights. So they may admit that the unborn is biologically human. Did you know this? If you, press, if you press pro-choicers in an argument, they'll typically admit that the unborn is biologically human. They have human parents, all living things reproduce after their own kind. Okay, I guess it's a human, but it's not a person. And so I still support abortion through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all. Anytime someone tells you the unborn is a human but not a person, friends, here's what I want you to ask them, two questions. What's the difference between a human and a person? And secondly, have you ever met a human that's not a person? Like, do you have a picture of one, like, on your iPhone? Like, what does a human non-person look like? How many of them do you know? Well, unfortunately, that pro-choice would probably take you in a time machine with Marty McFly back to 1850s America. Oh, yeah. Not the first time a government, primarily one party, the Democratic Party, has said that some humans are not persons! This is exactly how Nazis view Jews and racists viewed blacks. The Democratic Party is the party of not all humans or persons. Shocker, wake up. That party is the party of demons and Satan? And that does not mean that the GOP is somehow the party of Jesus. It just means some political parties are significantly more evil than others. And when you define out of existence an entire class of human beings, and you come up with arbitrary, ridiculous standards for personhood, which ironically never denied the elite class of personhood, in order to murder the class of human beings that you already wanted to mistreat in the first place, that is a party that is deeply evil, deeply demonic, and that Christians should have nothing to do with. And if I offended you, you're welcome to leave. Okay, so... They confuse human value with human function. So what they do is they say, like racists, our victim class might be humans, but they're not persons. So what happens when being human is not enough to have natural rights, brothers and sisters? Because what's the only thing we have in common? A human nature, right? Look around the room. Do we have gender, age, size, development, IQ, athleticism, musical ability? Do we have any of these things in common? No, the only thing we have in common is a human nature. So what happens when being human is not enough to ground your rights? Well, then the high priests of secular progressivism and the elite class, the political class, they get to determine the litmus test for personhood. In 1850, that litmus test was IQ and skin color. Those were the number one arguments of racists. The Democratic Party said that blacks had the wrong skin color and they were stupider. Those were their primary arguments. For Nazis, it was religion and appearance and with unborn children, its size, level of development, environment and dependency. They're smaller, they're less developed, they're in a womb, and they're more dependent. Those are the differences between the unborn and us. But they even go further than that. They begin to come up with cognitive abilities or functions that they say you must meet in order to be a person. But they don't create these categories just accidentally. They create them with the foreknowledge and express intention of justifying the mistreatment of the unborn. Here's what I mean by this. Do you think racists actually believed that it was skin color that was decisive in human value? They didn't actually believe that. Because skin color comes in varying degrees, right? So even if all of the white racists in the Democratic Party held their palms up to one another in Congress, would they all have the same shade of skin color? No, it comes in varying degrees. But if you grant the racist argument that melanin is decisive in human value, then it would follow that the palest of skins has the greatest rights and the darkest of skins has the least rights. So albinos would rule over all of the normal pale-skinned white racist Democrats in that party. But not even they actually believed that, did they? So they didn't actually believe that skin color was part of the litmus test for personhood. So what did they believe? they already wanted to discriminate and dehumanize blacks and so they came up with arbitrary standards and checkboxes or functions that they said one must meet to be a person but they did that with the foreknowledge and intention of knowing that blacks wouldn't be able to meet their ridiculous standards of personhood so pro lifers do the same thing to the uh, pro choicers do the same thing to the unborn today so they say you must be capable of these functions to be a person and not ironically the unborn does not meet these functions. So they are self-awareness, consciousness, desires, ability to feel pain, and viability. Okay, let's go through them briefly. Oh, you can kill babies because they're not self-aware. That's what they say. The unborn doesn't know that they're being aborted. They're not aware of their own existence, so it's fine. That's my litmus test for personhood. Okay, very well, did you know the most recent scientific evidence has shown that infants are not self-aware until months after birth? Meaning they're not aware of themselves as a unique individual, that's never existed before and will never exist again. So can we kill those infants, pro Now, unless you're Peter Singer, you probably say no. So they're they're rejecting the application of their personhood litmus test this side of the womb. I wonder why they're doing that. Because then they might endanger their own rights. And nothing disturbs the high priests of secular progressivism more than that, is that their debauched view of personhood might be turned around and used against them. So they're just creating them with the foreknowledge that they can only be used to discriminate against the unborn. Shocker. What about consciousness? Oh, the unborn's not conscious, right? Well, neither are our loved ones when they're in a coma. Can we slit their throat? In fact, what if you're in the waiting room with your family having that hard conversation about whether to remove life support or not, because grandpa's in a coma, and then I sneak into the room and I slit his throat beforehand? I guess I haven't done anything wrong, right? Right, Choicer? Because he wasn't conscious. In fact, what if you ended up deciding to pull the plug? but I just slit his throat a minute before. The end result was the same. Grandpa died, so therefore it's morally equivalent. Right, pro-choicer? And he goes, uh, I think that's different. Yeah, exactly, because you're rejecting your litmus test for personhood this side of the womb. What about desires? The baby doesn't have any desires. And some more woke philosopher type pro-choicers, they'll, they'll, go, they'll go a little bit more fine tuning with their argument. They'll say that it's desires that ground our rights. So what they'll say is, if I don't violate your desires, I haven't violated your rights. Does that make sense? Because you don't know that you're being denied that right because you never desired it. Does that make sense? So they'll say, if we don't violate the unborn's desires, we haven't violated their rights, and they don't have a desire to go on living. Well, what about suicidally depressed individuals who want to kill themselves and also don't have a desire to go on living? What about Buddhists who try to reach nirvana? Anyone know what nirvana is? Getting rid of all... Desires! Now, I don't think it's possible, but let's say they achieve this. I guess we can kill Buddhists who have reached nirvana, because like the child in the womb, they don't have a desire to go on living. And the pro-tracer goes, eh, I don't think so. Exactly. What about ability to feel pain? The baby doesn't know it's being suctioned or having its limbs ripped off its body. Well, actually, the most recent science of neural pain has suggested that the unborn child responds to stimuli as early as seven or eight weeks. And then by 18 weeks, they're fully capable of experiencing pain at the same level of you and I. So when you kill an 18-week unborn child, it is as painful to them as if I ripped your limbs off your body. But let's grant their premise, let's say it's at eight weeks, or six weeks, I'm sorry. Okay, they can't feel pain, right? Well, then can we kill born people with the condition congenital analgesia? It's a condition in which you cannot feel any pain. And the protracer goes, well, no, I don't think so. And then viability. We can kill unborn children through abortion because they're not viable. Now, viability, if you don't know, is this ridiculous subjective term that refers to when the child can survive outside the womb. Problem is, that changes every few years because we develop medical technology that enables us to make unborn children able to survive outside the womb. (laughs) And the earliest baby to have survived born alive, went home healthy, 21 weeks and zero days. So we've almost cut gestation in half. The the 40 weeks full gestation, 21 weeks. Crazy, wild. We could not do that 10 or 20 years ago. So viability just becomes this totally subjective term that changes, right? So even if you grant that premise, you'd be forced to say that one's natural right to life is conditional upon the brilliance of scientists. Like your actual natural right to life, it changes every few years dependent on the minds of adults who will or will not develop technology that will make you Viable at that stage of development. That is a completely ridiculous uh, definition. But they say the child's not viable because it can't survive outside the womb because it's dependent on mom. So, therefore, because they're dependent, it's up to the mother to decide whether to give her support to that child. Okay? Can we kill born people who are dependent on heart pacemakers, kidney machines, insulin, life support, and caretakers? Like the child in the womb, they're dependent on someone or something else without which they cannot continue to live. Who wants to get on board with killing those people? Well, many pro-choicers do. This is why many people in the abortion industry and the culture of death support doctor-assisted suicide and euthanasia. Because grandma and grandpa who are too expensive to take care of and are unwanted are just like the child in the womb, too expensive to take care of and unwanted. Yes, ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. Now, of course, the pro-choicer never explains why these functions are value-giving in the first place. This is an important point. They never explain why the possession of viability, self-awareness, consciousness, desires, they never explain why the possession of those functions grant value in the first place. They just assume that it's those functions. But why those functions? Why not um, the ability to multiply? Why not the ability to play violin? Those are my new litmus tests for personhood, pro-choice. Oh, you can't play violin? Sorry, fourth trimester abortions. Kill you. And of course, they would laugh at me if I said the litmus test for personhood was the ability to multiply, right? They would think that was really stupid. And why would they think it was stupid? Seth, you can't just pick a random function and just then therefore insinuate that it's needed for a right to life. Uh Uh-huh. And neither can you. So they never explain why the possession of those functions are value-giving in the first place. They just assume it. Back to the first mistake. Lastly, if you grant this premise, remember, that they confuse human value with human function. If you grant this premise that you're only valuable based on your functions and utility and what you can provide to others rather than who you are, a human being. If you grant that premise, human equality is destroyed. We're not even equal anymore. If you grant that premise, you don't just dehumanize the unborn, you dehumanize all human beings. Why? Because all of those functions that I just told you, that they say the unborn must meet to have a right to life, come in varying degrees. So if you ground rights in things that come in varying degrees, what follows? Rights, therefore, come in varying degrees. This is not the brilliance of me or the pro-life movement. These were the same points that Abraham Lincoln made into the face of the racist slavery movement. Here's what he said. Same exact thing. He made the same point. Here's what he said. You say A is white and B is black. It is color then, the lighter having the right to enslave the darker. Hmm. Take care. By this rule, you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with a skin fairer than your own. Oops. And then Lincoln said, oh, but you say it is a question of intellect. He's responding to the races, right? You say that whites are intellectually the superiors of blacks and therefore have the right to enslave them. Hmm. Take care again, by this rule, you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with an intellect superior to your own. Oops. And then Lincoln says, but you say it is a question of interest. And if you can make it your interest, you have the right to enslave another. Very well. And if he can make it his interest, he has the right to enslave you. So interest, intellect, and skin color come in varying degrees. So it would mean that the albino rules overall. The person with the highest IQ rules over all, and the person with the most interest rules over all. And if you have an IQ or a skin color that's less than that elite class, you're also not a person. So if you don't ground rights in the only thing we have in common, which is a human nature, and when did we get a human nature? When we became human. And when did we become human? The moment of conception. So it's only the pro-life position that can even maintain this idea of human equality because it grounds our rights in the only thing we have in common. So, brothers and sisters, each of these five ways that many pro-choice advocates respond to the abortion issue are mistaken and misplaced because they fail to adequately answer the only question that matters at the end of the day, which is, what is the unborn? Are they an insensate blob of tissue, so therefore aborting them is no more morally problematic than clipping your fingernails? Or are they a distinct living and whole human being who while they reside in their mother's body are unique because they could be a different gender and pregnant women don't have penises, because they're living because dead things don't grow and they're directing their own internal growth from within and they're a whole human being because from the moment of conception they already had everything they needed to realize their full growth and development as a participating member of the human species. Until you answer that question, what is the unborn, you will not get moral clarity on this debate. And as long as you allow the pro-choice movement and pro-choice advocates to skirt around and avoid that central question, what is the unborn, then you will never change any minds or change any hearts. That's the question they have to answer. That's the one they have to contend with. And that's the main thing that they tend to avoid like wildfire because they know that the facts and the science are not in their favor, but it's in our favor. Those are the five mistakes you need to be aware of so that you can identify them when they make those mistakes and you're equipped to engage with the ideas that are being fired at you in a hostile post-Christian culture of death that literally believes that you are a bigot and you should be cast into utter darkness. Unless we wake up and begin contending against these bigoted, deeply evil ideas, not only will the right to life continue to be trampled and ignored, but all of our other liberties and rights that we take for granted and that we actually kind of need in order to participate in the public square and save as many preborn children as possible will continue to go away as well. In the meantime, I will see you on the battlefield. Now go out there and give them heaven. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed that lecture and speech. Would you please share that with your pastor, your youth pastor, your friends and family members, Uh, have conversations. Hey, uh, treat your pro-choice friend to a latte and a lunch if they listen to it and talk with you about it afterwards. Uh, If you enjoyed that and you wanna get more equipped and dive deeper into these ideas as they're uh, chopping up the babies, chopping up the kids, pumping them full of cross-sex hormones, arresting pro-life Catholics, all of the craziness going on right now, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, Rumble, subscribe, leave us a rating and review. It helps more people see the the podcast. We really appreciate that. If you wanna hear more of these ideas, if you wanna come hear me speak live and local or bring me to talk about these ideas to your pregnancy center or your church or your conference, go to sethgruber.com. And if you wanna get involved with the White Rose Resistance to help us rebuild Christian resistance against this culture of death, go to www.thewhiterose.life, thewhiterose.life. Uh, And if you join at $35 a month, you'll have exclusive access to our monthly White Rose Digital Circle, uh, where we have exclusive access amongst so many of our allies and donors to just do more one-on-one training, fellowship, hanging out and diving deeper into all these very important conversations that we need to be having, especially as Christians, um, in this post-Roe v. Wade moment that we never thought would happen. Um, So until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Oh, oh, oh,